Welcome to the Slowing Down Podcast. I'm your host, Jana Slow-Akimova. Today, I speak with David Miranda, a self-taught full-stack developer, product designer, marketer, and creator of Polite Pop, a technology through which I discovered David. To give you some background, I was searching for a new tool for my website and found Polite Pop. It's a smart sign-up form that appears eventually depending on the engagement with the website. There was a demo page with a sample text. To my surprise, its implementation was so tasteful that I read the whole thing right away. The author spoke about online marketing and the importance of slowing down before rushing to publish anything online. I was in awe that the creator of a digital tool talks about slowing down. So I followed David on Twitter and later invited him on the podcast to talk about the world of startups, since David has worked in several of them, both toxic and healthy, small and scaled up. I was curious how he arrived to the idea of slowing down and why. So let's find out. How I got to kind of slowing down and that concept, how it was introduced to my life is through a book called Slowing Down to the Speed of Life, which is one of the best books I've ever read. Like <laughs> when I just open it and start reading a page, I immediately feel myself just slowing down, like just feeling like more relaxed. I'm very guilty of not reading this book. <laughs> it was brought to me like a few times on the podcast. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have to finish the War and Peace first and then I'll jump there. <laughs> but it has to be on my shelf soon. Yeah, that's a really, really good title. <laughs> I'll say that. Mm -hmm. I think it kind of sums it up just in the, in the title. And you kind of talk about it in your Twitter thread that I think is uh, pinned to your profile right now about how you can kind of get disconnected from your body and your mind can kind of go at the speed of light, right? Like you can just be like mm. going from thing to thing to thing and it's not, not really connected mm -hmm. to reality and what's happening in the moment. And the book just, uh, in my opinion, just kind of explains how that's it's more healthy to not be in that space to kind of be more connected to your body and kind of let go of that fast processing and then when you need it to intentionally bring the fast processing into your life right so like if you need to calculate a bunch of things or or think through you know a, a strategy and and really plan things out then sure consciously bring that into your life but um, living there is very unhealthy and makes you think that life is one thing when it doesn't have to be, right? It doesn't have to be sped up. It doesn't have to be stressful all the time. You don't always have to think, be thinking about what's going to happen next and, mm -hmm. you know, if it's going to be a disaster or not. You can kind of just let go of all of that and settle into kind of a slower way of being that is not judgmental and is not um, not fast. So between you working in startups and getting this book, what happened in between? Why did this book uh, suddenly speak to you in the past? Were you looking for this title, like, or it just happened to just enter your life, or? I actually don't remember where I picked it up, but I do remember that at the time I was going through a lot of self-help books. And I think I was just very confused at the time about why I was so stressed out all the time. And also, I had this big problem, which was that every startup I worked at, I would burn out at. I would, I would get so tense and so anxious that eventually I would have to leave. I would have to quit or, you know, scale down my work. At the first startup I worked at, I, I ended up working four days a week. And then uh, shortly after that, I ended up leaving. And at the second startup, I, um, I tried to quit and they wouldn't let me quit. <laughs> they like said, oh, well, you know, we'll give you your private office and, you know, we'll give you some time working from home, whatever you need, David, you know, like, <laughs> just let us know. And, um, and so I was like, okay, I, I'll try it. 
<laughs> but at that point, I was so stressed out that one day I just uh, I just stopped showing up to work and I and I quit from there. And that's the the least professional way I've ever left a job. I didn't give them warning. I tried to right because I tried to quit, <laughs> but I literally couldn't like summon the strength to actually go back to work. I just felt so stressed out and. At that point, I was actually leaving work at um, around 2 p.m. every day and asking my boss if I could finish up work from home. And he would always say yes, but it was like such a common occurrence um, that I was kind of embarrassed. And the reason was is my head was so tense and so in pain that I couldn't even think. And I just needed to go home and just rest in my bed for like an hour until my brain calmed down. And then I could go and work for another few hours um, at my desk. Mm-hmm. And I would actually, I remember I would lie on a bench in the bathroom at that job for like mm-hmm. half of my lunch and just kind of beg my brain to slow down and uh, stop hurting. <laughs> Wow. Um, yeah, it was, um, yeah, that was a difficult time. Um, I went on a lot of long walks, uh, that helped a lot. I listened to a lot of classical music, um, that also helped. But I think at, at the end of the day, uh, it was just kind of my refusal, I think, to live in, uh, the moment and in the reality of what was happening that really was the most destructive part. And I think uh, at startups, you're often encouraged to do this, right? You're often encouraged Mm -hmm. to think about tomorrow, not today, to think about future success and how great it's going to be. And, oh, we're going to, you know, get acquired by a big company or, oh, we have this big project that's about to launch and it's any day now. And it's always any day now. And if you can stay in that mode, then I think you can be pretty comfortable at a startup, but if you stop to slow down and you realize, oh, I've been here for two and a half years and none of these promises have played out and we still don't have any users and we keep switching focuses and I don't believe in what, what I'm doing and you know, the founders lied to me about what the product did when I first signed up, and I'm just realizing that. And uh, it doesn't actually work how it's supposed to. Um, the demo was just a fabrication. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just one thing after another. And I think I was trying to tell myself, well, it doesn't matter. I'm getting paid. It doesn't matter. You know, this next thing might succeed. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. I like working with my teammates. But I think at the end of the day, my brain was telling me, you have to look at what's actually happening. And like, I'm not stressing you out for no reason. Like, there's something actually happening here that is a little bit toxic and, and bad for you. Mm-hmm. I was really confused about that for a while and like what was going on. And um, I was looking for a solution. And self-help books helped a lot, um, not even for their advice, but more for their um, their attitude and their energy. Mm-hmm. Like just reading them would be a calming activity that someone could have this totally different viewpoint of life that it's not all about making money. It's not all about massive startup success. It can be about something simpler. It can be about living in the moment and letting go and being present with the people around you and and caring about them. And I think just that being repeated over and over again throughout all all these self-help books is kind of what helped me come back to myself and choose a healthier path forward uh, for my next job. Mm -hmm. And what was your next job? That was the one <laughs> that failed within nine months, uh, but it was a much better experience than than the one before it. The founders were so friendly; they actually cared about me. Um, they didn't have a ton of money, uh, but they still gave me a good severance when I left. 
they just did a lot of like caring things that were very human that I did not experience at at some of the other places that I worked. I have a few friends who work in tech and I'm not coming from the tech background. So for me, when I hear about startups, it looks very kind of cinematic in a way and dramatic <laughs> mm. because it's something which is, for example, I, I don't know much about startups, but I'm exposed to this, let's say, um, information pouring at me from different sources and startups look like very nicely wrapped candies like the best workflow you mm -hmm. go and you can like lie down on a bean bag you know and <laughs> um work with your like legs up on the desk and uh or like at, at any place or go to a cafe or if you want to just uh, move to the beach and just work from there you know so this kind of image of freedom and kind of collective freedom too Mm -hmm. Or when you can um, start later in the day and not particularly having like this nine to five um, rhythm, like five days a week. But also most of my friends who work in IT are either depressed or taking antidepressant pills or experiencing a lot of an anxiety or just really feel sometimes even even suicidal, I would not be afraid to say that word. Um, maybe those mm -hmm. are like extreme versions, mm -hmm. but um, so I see that uh, these two images don't really correlate with each other. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on? Yeah. Could you maybe just explain a person who doesn't understand what the startup world is, if you could maybe point out like how, why, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> why from a side it looks like it's a perfect world to work in, but then on the mm -hmm. inside, it seems like a lot of people experience a lot of stress. I think that it really comes down to the culture of the startup, because I think there are healthier startups to work at. I don't want to say too much negative about working in startups because I want to get hired <laughs> by more <laughs> startups. Um, I've, as I said, like I've I've only worked at startups so far. Obviously, something about them really enchants me, and there is something really good, I think, about working um, at them. There's just so much freedom, like you mentioned, right? You can work with your feet up on the desk, you can work from a cafe, you can work remote, you can work on a beanbag chair, you can take the afternoon off sometimes, you know, if you want to. They're pretty flexible in general, as long as you get the work done. But I will say this, so... If you don't have product market fit, right? If you're still struggling to find a source of revenue and excitement for your business, then I think that that stress trickles down to the employees. And, you know, a good founder, a good leadership team will kind of take that on themselves and say, okay, well, you know, we didn't know what we were doing last week, but now we have a clear direction. This is what we're doing for the next six months, right? Mm -hmm. But I think eventually, you know, once they change their mind three months later and then three months after that, and you've gone through a few of these major projects and you realize that leadership doesn't have a good idea of what's happening next, it can feel pretty threatening. Um, <laughs> just like objectively, like, what am I doing with my life? Mm -hmm. If you don't have a job, right, and you're just working on whatever you want, you can get this kind of panicked feeling sometimes, right, where, you know, maybe after a few months of working on something, you look back on it and you're like, why did I do this? Why did I spend so much time on this? Mm -hmm. um, what am I doing with my life? And I think at a startup, it can be similar, right? Like, if you don't really have a clear direction, it can kind of feel like you don't have a job, <laughs> you don't have a boss, you don't have motivation, really, like you're not getting feedback from customers. So mm -hmm. you don't have that connection to other human beings and providing value for them. Mm -hmm. So like after three months, after six months, after a year, after two years of this, going on in the background where you're kind of disconnected from reality, right? You're not getting 
good feedback from the market. You're not getting good feedback from individual customers. You're not getting feedback from your stats going up, right? You're not getting more traffic on your website. You're not getting more revenue. It can kind of just kind of feel like you're floating <laughs> out in space and you're, you're not tethered to something real and doing something real. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's probably why startups emphasize what they do emphasize, right? About the freedom and about how you can determine your own schedule and when what you're working on, because that's actually necessary, right? For a good startup to survive, you need the employees to take on some of that effort and, you know, get to the launch date, uh, get to the customer who's going to tell you the, the insight that's going to help you connect with the market. And if all of your employees do that and they take that on and they use their freedom to, to accomplish that goal, then you have a good startup that runs well. And once you have product market fit, everything flows better, right? If you have customers coming to you instead of you having to beg them to, <laughs> to come, uh, then you know you have a path towards revenue and uh, you know you have a clear idea of how to market the product and you have a direction, right? Mm-hmm. Even after you gain product market fit, there is still a lot of uncertainty because at that point your company is going to double, triple, quadruple in size, mm-hmm. maybe every year or two years or three years. And trying to fit yourself into that organization as it's changing massively and its culture is changing and the people who you hired are doubting you know, you or your decisions and people are moving up and down in the ranks or someone's you know getting randomly fired that can be all a lot to navigate as well as you're also like trying to figure out the market and the product and how everything fits together so you kind of go from like one really really hard problem to another really really hard problem <laughs> over and over again and then of mm-hmm. course like once you scale out like let's say you scale to the point and I've never reached this point before, right? I've always left a company before this, but I would imagine once you scale your company up to solve your problem, like say you have 100 employees and that's enough to take on the market as it exists, mm-hmm. now you need to find a new problem, right? Or you can't grow. Mm-hmm. And if you can't grow as a startup, you might as well be dead, right? You're not going to get more funding. You're not going to get your IPO, you're not going to get acquired, right? Or maybe you'll get acquired, right? And maybe that'll be the best solution. But um, but in general, I think you have to just kind of keep taking on those really, really big gargantuan, you know, challenges. And yeah, I think that at the end of the day, what I've learned is setting boundaries is, is the key to that. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. if you if you go in there not knowing what a startup is, and you don't have good guidance around it, you're going to end up getting burned out. But I think if you have good boundaries, that's that's a really good way to approach uh, working at a startup. Mm-hmm. Well, so many things. <laughs> I imagine just startup being like the spaceship browsing through the vast space and from what you just explained, I imagine that if there is no precise coordinates uh, of where the ship is going, you might never find a cool resourceful planet or like a cool star to get the energy from or something and just be out yeah. there in the space. And and that's scary. That's a good metaphor. Yeah. Right? Like uncertainty is scary. And you're running out of food and fuel the whole time, right? Uh, right. <laughs> Exactly. That's pretty stressful and yet inspiring. I want to go back to your background and ask who you are. (laughs) What do you do? (laughs) Uh, Where is your zone of expertise? So my focus has always been on the user and always been trying to figure out a way to get people to understand the technology that you're building. Because I have always seen that as the biggest problem. So my focus has always been on UX, on user experience, which involves design, but also interaction, prototyping, testing out ideas. Because um, I feel like technology is, is so new, right? Computers, the internet, tablets, 
iPhones, uh, just smartphones in general, right? Like these are, this is all relatively new technology and the interfaces that we use to interact with these devices um, are still changing and evolving. And the things we're able to do are becoming more and more powerful, right? Like click a button, get a car, you know, at your doorstep, click a button, you know, get a, get a meal delivered, click a button, you know, you have a, an airplane ticket, right? Like there's so many things that used to be so much more complicated and now they're just click a button. Even worse, it's not even like a click anymore, not even like uh, moving your finger, you can just say it. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting to me, like the way that we think and interact with computers and how they can supplement our, our thinking is really interesting. But I, I'm also a coder. I'm less passionate about the coding part, uh, but I love coding because it lets me uh, create things that, that people can use and test out ideas and get to a product. But my real love is the product, the final product, right? Something that works, that accomplishes a goal, that fulfills a need. And that's kind of where my focus has always been, is testing that out, seeing if we've found product market fit or found an interface that people at least understand how to use and, and what it is. Cool. And besides working in startups, um, so you have your own products you created, right? Yes, yes. And what kind of side projects? What are your digital babies? Um, so I have Polite Pop, as you mentioned, which is a polite way to collect email addresses. It's like an alternative to a pop-up form. And I have a product called Remake, which was a passion project for a very, very long time. And it still is. I still think about it at least once a week and brainstorm about it. Um, but that allows you to create full interactive web applications with user accounts and a database and everything just using HTML instead of using programming language like a JavaScript or Python or Java or something, you can just use the front-end technology of HTML to build up all of the interactions and all of the way the data is presented and saved uh, to the database. Yeah, that comes from my interest in creating prototypes and products really quickly to just see if they have traction. And so that's where the idea for for Remake came from. But it didn't take off as much as <laughs> I was hoping. And I think it's for very clear reasons to me now. What would be the reasons? I think it's just fulfilling a need that's not there, uh, you know, solving a problem that doesn't exist. It's like marketing research before launching the product? Well, so I think like prototyping products quickly is a problem that needs to be solved. But prototyping products quickly for people who already know HTML is a less important problem. Because if you already know HTML, you probably know CSS. And if you already know CSS, you probably know a little bit of JavaScript. So at that point, like you can probably make the full product and have a ton of flexibility. And so you'd have to find Remake at exactly the right time in your journey of learning how to code for it to make sense to actually use, right? You have to learn like HTML and CSS and nothing else. And then you find Remake. And then you also have to have this problem of, I'm trying to create a product really quickly just to see if it has product market fit. And the only reason you would want to do that is if you've been through this struggle before, right? If you're like me and you've worked at multiple startups uh, or you've tried to start multiple startups and you've failed again and again, and you realize that the solution is to build something quickly and just get it out there and see if it works. So it's this like really weird <laughs> like conflagration of of <laughs> attributes and problems that need to come together for you to be in the right target market for remake. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna figure it out. I'm gonna figure yeah. out how to how to make it a good fit, but right now it's mm -hmm. not. Wow. That's like a, like a maze for a potential client, let's say, to find it. Um, yeah. All the stars in the universe have to align. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the thing is, I've gotten about 10 people total reach out to me and say, this is genius. Uh -huh. Like, they'll say, this is genius, or I love this, or I can't wait for to like pay for this. Mm -hmm. 
And, but it's only like about 10 people who are like super, super excited about it. Mm -hmm. And then everyone else is kind of like, well, you know, I'm a beginner. Can I use this? You know? And I'm like, uh, you know, like kind of, but, (laughs) but kind of not. Yeah. You mentioned that quickly launching something and then I'm thinking about slowing down before making the decision or like the lunch. Mm. So after your experience with uh, startups where you went through this crazy headache you described or the need to just lie down and um, rest, how is it now? Do you implement some slowing down ideas into your daily life or your workflow, whereas you now work with the new startup uh, three times a week or uh, when you do your uh, side projects, do you implement uh, some of this idea of slowing down in your now, like in your lifestyle? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I had a therapist for a while who was very, very helpful with helping me slow down. And she suggested, or we kind of, you know, collaborated and, and worked on kind of a new schedule, which was uh, in the morning, I would go for a walk before I would start working. In the afternoon, I would take a little break, probably go for a walk, another walk. And in the evening, I wouldn't work after a certain time. So it didn't matter the time. I could choose the time. It started out at 8 p.m. and went back to 7 p.m. And now it's at 6 p.m. So after 6 p.m., I don't work at all. And on the weekends, uh, I don't work. That one took a while because I saw the weekends as, as one of the only opportunities of total freedom to just work for a long time. Mm-hmm. And eventually I, I realized, especially with having a, a new kid, a new baby, that it just Mm -hmm. wasn't sustainable. So I don't work on weekends. So those rules, those simple rules have really dramatically helped me to slow down. And they're just simple, right? I mean, it's just like, don't work (laughs) at certain times of the day or certain times of the week. But they give me something to look forward to. And they turn a week into a week, right? Like everyone has the concept of a week who works at a regular job. For a while, I, I didn't have or live that concept, right? It was just another day, another day, another day. And every day was filled with working and and my passion projects. And that was fun for a while. But I think, you know, it led a little bit to getting disconnected from from friends, from social events, from from my body, right? From feeling what I was feeling and processing my emotions. So that, that has helped a lot. And that goes with the boundaries, right? Uh, something you mentioned before. Yeah, I would say the other thing that that really impacts my mental health is, is clear boundaries, but that I'm willing and able to enforce, right? Because I think what doesn't get said sometimes about boundaries is that mm-hmm. other people don't really know them or understand them and they will try to push up against them or or just roll over them right so you really need to be quite mm-hmm. adamant that these are your boundaries this is when you're working this is something you're not going to do today or this is something you're not going to do this week right and you're going to prioritize this other thing you really need to be clear with yourself about what you're willing to do and what you are doing in order to be strong about those boundaries, um, which is so, so important at a startup because they really will just kind of push you around and, and have you change focus every, every week or every month. And a lot of that, you know, comes down like it's your responsibility. It's your fault. If, if like someone says like, Oh, well, this is kind of an exciting project. And you say, okay, I'll do that. You know, like that's kind of your fault, right? Mm -hmm. But like a good boss, a good founder will tell you like, what about that other thing? You know, (laughs) what about that thing we talked about last week? Um, You know, why don't you stay focused on that? Um, And for me, what it really comes down to is, again, that 
idea of our users understanding our product. Do people want to use our product? Are we creating something valuable? And I think that that question can keep you really, really grounded if you're aware of the steps to get there, right? And if you're halfway through building out a hypothesis um, of a product and your boss says, oh, let's focus on this other thing now, I think you can make a very powerful argument for, no, we're not going to change focus right now. We have this other hypothesis half built. This is going to teach us a lot about the customer and a lot about the market. Let's finish this up in the next few days, right? We can, we don't have to make it perfect. So we don't have to use the full time that we were planning to use, but let's take a few days to at least polish it up a tiny bit and then release it and learn something about the market. Um, because I think that there is this tendency in a startup to never connect with reality. Because reality mm. is unsafe. Reality tells you that you're going in the wrong direction. Um, reality is a threat to the dreams of a startup, to the big plans of a startup. Um, wow. But if you constantly try to connect with reality and actually guide yourself towards something that is a real solution, then I think you can really stay on a clear path and a good path. Working at this new startup now, my focus is just working on one thing at a time and actually getting it out there and actually seeing how it does in the market, right? And then going to the next thing, uh, not skipping around and not focusing on more than one thing at the same time. Um, so yeah, that's been really, really helpful for my boundaries, just focusing on the bigger picture there. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, again, just images come to my mind and... Um... I just for a second saw the startup being like the operation center in the head. And when the head is floating too much above the body, <laughs> the body kind of loses the sense of the head and the head is losing the sense of the body and this disconnection from the reality, what you explained. I've just never thought about the collective slowing down or the collective body-mind. <laughs> and mm. that's something I'm learning from you right now. I work with individuals mostly. I don't work with companies. I'm also like a yoga teacher. So even if it's a group, I still work with every individual body, right? <laughs> and body and mind. And I also work uh, part-time in the academia. So I'm a research assistant. And that's something what I also see in the academia when uh, people in the academia uh, with all these master PhDs and postdocs and or professors um, with so much achievement in the academia that uh, when they want to examine a certain problem, sometimes it gets kind of disconnected from the reality. So for me, academia is like a spaceship. Um, and sometimes you have to get dirty. You have to step on the ground, uh, look around, touch the earth, mm -hmm. you know, and understand what you're really working with and who is this research uh, made for. Um, so I see a kind of correlation there too. And that's something what I noticed is uh, this kind of collective um, speeding up, slowing down this connection and disconnection. And when there is disconnection, that's like a problem there. That's really great that you can bring something what you've learned doing therapy into the workflow i think it's very healthy it took a while too it wasn't it wasn't like we talked about it one session and then all of a sudden i was i implemented all of this it took months and mm -hmm. like i would come back the next week and i would be like oh i, I or i work past 8 p.m again you know um for like three times this week and you know, it was fine. It was non-judgmental, right? Like my therapist was like, "Okay, well, that's fine. How did how did you feel, right? How did you make how that make you feel?" And I was like, "Oh, I was really stressed out this week, and I feel like I didn't have any time to like actually put my feet on the ground." And um, and just through that recognition, and and going back to realizing how the habits were affecting my body and my mind. Mm -hmm then I was gradually able to see the effect and see how the changes were positive. Yeah, so it was a slow process, but very healthy. 
I was curious about the idea of growth in the context of startups and if there is a possibility to be kind of boutique uh, startup or I would compare it with fashion. So there are like big fast fashion industries which want every customer to wear like a piece of uh, Shiri Zara, right? Um, versus um, there are some boutique companies who like handmade clothes from sustainable sources or they upcycle things and they are not so interested in growing rather than just having a um, stable amount of customers who can just keep them running. Is there something like that in the world of a startup or not really? And startups are by definition have to grow and it's like inevitable almost. Um, they like grow or die. Or is there a possibility to be small and sustainable and kind of niche, kind of boutique? So the, the term I've heard is lifestyle businesses. And usually it's solo developers or designers um, who create a niche product and then sell it for, you know, a pretty low cost and have really good customer support um, and have a close relationship with their audience and just kind of build steadily, but uh, build over years, right? So maybe every couple of months, they'll release a small new feature instead of like a startup who's trying to release, you know, three features every week or two. Um, mm -hmm. Indie hackers is kind of like a term that's pretty popular on Twitter right now and is kind of a cultural movement of people just trying to get to uh, ramen profitability, right? Just trying to get to the point where their independent business can support their lifestyle um, and then they can do whatever they want, right? Once they reach that goal, they can travel the world, they can take a week off or a year off or <laughs> 20 years <laughs> off, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's kind of the direction I see a lot of people going, especially people burned out by startups, is they either want to quit tech altogether <laughs> and go live in the forest or, <laughs> or um, become a, a barista, um, or they want to create an independent business on the side and get it to ramen profitability. Oh, wow. But it's not your direction, right? Or what would be your ideal world? My ideal world is to do that and then to create an incubator for other companies that also want to do that. And then to gradually eat away at uh, the corporate world and bring it back down into individual businesses. Yeah. So I think I, I kind of have a, a grand vision that eventually the world will be kind of smaller businesses interacting with, with each other instead of these giant, faceless, soulless mega corporations that um, care more about profits than the people they're serving. Mm -hmm. Yes, please. <laughs> um, what's your relationships with the productivity and like planning and all of those things? Uh, do you feel at peace with to-do lists or how do you navigate this? I have gone through about 150 productivity tools and none of them have worked. <laughs> um, and I've kind of just accepted my structure, which is that um, I make text notes and I use Trello sometimes. Um, and I have this vision that everything expires. I think that that's the ideal for like everything. Like I think email should expire. I think bookmarks should expire. I think documentation that you make for your company should expire. And I think to-dos should expire. So that's how I look at it. You know, like I'll create a list of to-dos and, you know, if I haven't worked on it in a week, it's expired. It's it's gone. Um, <laughs> I love this. <laughs> and I can just create a new to-do list. Uh -huh. Wow. Yeah, it's like yeah. if you haven't done that for like a week or two or three or been po postponing it, probably it's not important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow, cool. I like that. I got into this trap of productivity kind of gurus started following some of them and there are so many uh, tools to use and I got kind of 
swamped uh, into into them. Um, I've never tried like more than 10, <laughs> but definitely I tried to comprehend Notion, which was so heavy on marketing through influencers lately. And mm. I tried to use it. I'm like, no, it's so not user-friendly. Um, mm-hmm. I am... I'm coming again from the artistic kind of filmmaking background. I don't know how to uh, do this boring things, you know. And then also I didn't feel that it belongs to me. Whatever I would do on Notion, it felt like it's like a void. It's going somewhere else. I don't know how to explain that. Like energetically, I didn't feel good. And yeah, um, yeah I ended up using Trello. And uh, for all my writings, it's Scrivener. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Scrivener. I have that. I felt so good. It's like, hey, I can buy it and own it. And they're not yep. linked to anything else. I don't need internet for using it <laughs> unless I yep. want to synchronize between my um, iPad and uh, MacBook. And yeah, it felt really good. Um, but this productivity whole thing, it felt as if... It's just a part of this madness. That's why I asked. I'm, I'm glad that you <laughs> said that <laughs> everything should expire because uh, making plans about making plans about making plans is also killing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to go back to uh, the marketing and um, to the text you wrote. Uh, so was it your text, right? I'm, I'm not mistaking yes. anything on Paulette Pop. Cool. I was actually confused when you said you read the text on the Pop website when you initially messaged me. I was confused what you meant. Because <laughs> um, I was like, I didn't write any text where. But this was actually a blog post that I was uh-huh. planning to, to write. Uh-huh. Um, and I never like officially published it or announced it, but I just used it for this demo page. <laughs> so it's cool that you actually read it. Yeah, I read and, it with pleasure yeah. because yeah, <laughs> lots of ideas spoke there. And mm, so I just want maybe uh, read the small passage. You write here, something that can help a lot with this is to have a group of people or at least one person who you can show your writing to ahead of publishing it. This will slow you down and give you much needed perspective, a small, slow space to be vulnerable before you expose your inner world to the wider world. Um, could you comment on that, please? Because it's beautifully written and it's like an advice for marketing, but I feel like it's an advice for life too. There is an energy to everything that we put out into the world. Mm-hmm. And that the energy we put into it initially is not necessarily what someone else picks up from it. So I think we need to continually go back to whatever we create and look at it from a different angle, a different perspective, in order to nurture it into something real and something that matters to other people. Um, And I think that if you give this space to yourself, you know, you you take a few days away from a project and then come back to it or you show it to someone else, I think they naturally kind of take in what you've given and then put some of themselves back into it. Um, and I think that's necessary for any creative work in order for it, it to be good. Like it needs time. And it needs this like constant energy and these layers to kind of be built up on top of it. Because I think otherwise it's kind of flat, right? Like if you, if you write out, let's say a tweet in an afternoon and you don't think about it and you just post it, it's just, it's just flat. It just means that one thing, right? But I think if you go back to it before you post it and you go back to that thought, and you see it from a different angle, and then you add to it, I think it can become something more solid and more more real. And I think that's so uncommon these days um, in our fast-paced world where everything is about just quick bites of information and putting out something just to test it and just consuming, 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 and then moving on to the next thing. And I think that that is a sad state to be right when you're in this rush all the time to be moving on to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing but i think if you encounter something that has these layers right 
Like mm -hmm. it's like a movie that's worth rewatching because there's multiple meanings to it. Um, you can really fall in love with it, right? Because it's like a person or it's like an experience or it's like a place, right? It feels real because it has this, this layer of time that went into it, this layer of evolution, this layer of care, um, this layer of attention. And it's not just this flat thing that was just put into the world to get your attention. It has, it has depth to it. It has real depth to it. And so you can spend time with it. You can slow down. And I think there are a lot of people who are afraid of putting out that kind of content right now because they're like, oh, everyone is just, you know, moving from one thing to the next and they're not going to pay attention to my, my long, slow um, thing that requires a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that is also a, a self-reinforcing system, right? And I think if you do put in the layers and you do make it worth it to dig into something, people will dig into it. Um, but I think you have to have that faith that it's worth it and that, um, and that you know what you're doing to some extent, right? Because uh, if you don't have that confidence also about how to tell a story or, or how to attract someone's attention or how to talk about what people care about, then yeah, you might actually miss uh, your audience, right? Who is desperate for your, um, for your story. Um, so I think it takes a lot of patience. I think it takes, it's like a lot of, it's very risky, but I mm -hmm. think it's very worth it because if you can get people to slow down and listen to you and, and read what you're doing and spend time with you, I think you can form a real relationship. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things to do online when everything looks like it's just instant, you know, trying to get your attention and looks like it's just trying to get your money, right? Um, I think that act of slowing down and, and being present and being real is really hard to communicate mm -hmm. online. But still possible, do you think? Yeah, well, I think it's totally possible. I think you just have to put in the time and make it worth exploring, right? Like if you if you sit down and you write a tweet, right? And it only means one thing to you in that one moment, then mm. I think that's all anyone can really get out of it, right? And they might not even get that out of it because that's your perspective of that tweet, right? That's not someone else's perspective. But let's say you take that tweet, you sleep on it, and you come back to it the next morning when you have a different perspective. Mm -hmm. It could mean something totally different to you. And you could see that you're not communicating exactly what you want to be communicating. But if you spend that time with it and you show it to other people and you ask them what they think about it, and over time you evolve it and develop it into something that really means what you mean it to mean, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And is really something that you care about and is really something that you want to put out into the world, then I think you give the opportunity for other people to resonate with that in a really deep way. Mm -hmm. But if you don't put that time and energy into it, then I think the worst thing that can happen is that people resonate with it but you don't even know that that's possible. So you have people out there who are desperate to communicate with you and desperate con to connect with you on a level that you are also desperate to connect with. And yet, because you're not putting in that attention and you're not being conscious about what you're doing and what you're saying, you don't even realize what you're putting out there to connect with. So I think, yeah, I think if you slow down and you pay attention to what you're saying and how you're saying it, um, and you go back to it and you nurture it and you treat it like a garden and help it grow, then I think you can really connect to someone else in a real way. Absolutely. Cool. Thank you so much. Forgive me for a simplificated image. Um, that's something what I thought of um, in terms of production. Let's say this Hollywood blockbuster is like superhero movies, which are just uh copy pasted they almost like have no soul mm -hmm. um you can watch it once maybe and and then never rewatch it because it just has no 
again, as you said, like layers and um, love behind that. Uh, whereas there are some movies which like I definitely go back and rewatch, like for example, Slacker uh, by Linklater, one of my favorite movies. I would rewatch every couple of years or I don't know, Linklater is like the overall my favorite <laughs> director uh, because there is so much love and so much uh, so many layers and so many years of production and also years of not even doing anything but just like traveling and soaking the world around him uh, before he would even start doing something or producing something or like writing a script um yeah so that's something what i can relate to a lot it's you said it very beautifully and that's something what i feel also about uh, browsing the internet and that sometimes like i open like a twitter account of a person maybe i saw on youtube or something like that right and then i see that like all the tweets are made for um, just marketing reasons, you know, just to um, hit the number or to create the engagement. And it immediately, like, you know, kind of makes me feel mm, not important for this person too, mm -hmm. but also just feeling that, ah, well, I just spent my energy reading it, but did I actually get something back <laughs> from reading this? I'm new at Twitter. Like I just uh, signed up like a year ago. And for the first uh, half a year, I was so shy. I was just posting GIFs of yanning uh, animals. Mm. Um, and then I slowly started interacting with people on Twitter. And then and I felt that, wow, there are actually like-minded uh, human beings who would sleep on a tweet before they would tweet it <laughs> and not just pursuing the numbers not just trying to engage actually trying to kind of build meaningful relationships with even maybe someone who you would never meet in real life but still trying to bring this uh, energy like the value of being alive or uh, trying to stay connected stay grounded and bring these values into this world, digital world, which allows us a lot, but also, yeah, it's kind of unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I agree with you. I agree with you very, very much. Yeah, I think that, yeah, if we can slow down and um, pay attention to the types of relationships that we want to nurture, I think it's it's much more important to do to do that for our own mental health and well-being than to you know quote unquote be successful, right? Cuz you need that. You need that connection to reality and to other people. You don't need to be rich, right? You don't need to be mega successful with a startup or have all of your tweets go viral. That's nice, but it's not something that you absolutely need. But I think as human beings, we need that connection, that deep emotional connection to other people. And I think we so often sacrifice that deep, deep human need for the surface level likes and the surface level fame and the surface level, you know, money. Um, those are all great. I'm not speaking against them. I would love to be rich and have a mega successful startup, right? But if your life is not also rich, then why have you done it? Like, you know, there's no point. <laughs> one richness is so much more important than the other and actually foundational to the other one, right? Yeah. It feels to me that in the, the modern Western world we live in is almost like cheering people who would lack certain human traits to get there. The idea of success is so disconnected from what it means to be a good person. That's something what I feel like oh, when I see someone like Elon Musk, for example, or um, other like super successful people, that mm. sometimes they're almost like, look inhumane or like a little bit insane or like lacking just um, kind of down to earth things like i don't know human touch right yeah i think they are trying to live inside of the digital ecosystem right like their their reality is not 
are is not walking outside and breathing in the air as much as it is existing inside of the digital ecosystem and the likes and the retweets and the commentary and the drama. Um, and I think that's a much harsher reality to try to survive in. Um, and it's disconnected, right? It's disconnected from your body and your mind. But I think those people who are able to stay connected and then also be online, um, I think that that's really, really powerful. I, I don't know. I browse TikTok a lot and I love some of the TikTok creators. And I'm like, how do you get the patience to create these super creative, really, really well done videos? Um, and I, I just, I think it must be, they just have very, like a lot of energy from their lives, right? Like they must have, and I'm not talking about all TikTok creators or all creators in general, but mm -hmm. I think some of them who really produce outstanding content, who are very creative, who are very, like, they seem very grounded. They seem like they're talking to actual problems that their audience has. I think they must have just like very nurturing lives, you know, and like <laughs> very good friendships. And they must spend like 90% of their time doing things that they enjoy. And then like 10% of their time actually creating content, you know, like that's, I think that's the dream. If you can stay grounded enough to actually put the right type of energy into your content that people are just so enthralled by it, you know, because it's so uncommon to go online and see something real. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think if you can bring that to the internet, I think there's mm -hmm. so there's so many people who are just stuck in their heads or stuck in their rooms mm -hmm. who are just so hungry for real human connection. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thank you. Is there something maybe on the surface or something what maybe I didn't ask you, but you wish I asked you? I think we've covered a lot. I think the one thing I wish we talked about a little bit more is mm -hmm. um, the startup culture of releasing early and releasing often, like launching very quickly. I, I don't want to open up a new can of worms, but I just want to talk about this very, very quickly. Absolutely. Take your time. Mm -hmm. So I think if you launch something quickly, you are immediately in debt to your audience in that you have presented something that, that looks finished and that looks polished but isn't actually built up um, fully. And so as a startup, you need to scramble to kind of fill in the holes, to fix the bugs, to build out the product. And I think that's a lot of what startup culture is about, is about putting on the, the surface, the, the paint, that makes it look professional and make it makes it look highly branded and very exciting. But in the background, there's a lot of struggle and there's a lot of pain to catch up to uh, reality, right? To catch up to what you've promised. Um, and you mentioned Elon Musk. I think he does this a ton, right? His product team doesn't even know what they're building until he tweets it out. Um, <laughs> And that's I, for real. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that's for real. Yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty common thing in startup culture is to be very surface level, to be very promising uh, of the future. Um, but I think that there is a different approach and I don't know what it is or what it looks like and if it can be as successful as the, you know, launch early and launch often approach. But I just think it's worth looking at it in terms of you're taking out debt. And if you're always feeling like you're in debt, right? If you're always feeling like you're trying to repay something in order to catch up to the moment, um, then maybe you're not in a healthy atmosphere. Because mm -hmm. eventually you should feel like you paid off the debt and 
if you chose to, you could coast for a little bit, right? And actually save up some, you know, some energy, right? Um, and I think that that is kind of a healthier way to be, even at a startup, right? And I don't see that kind of attitude at a lot of startups. I see that um, that it's pretty, it's pretty toxic. It's pretty like, it's pretty um, balanced towards always being in debt, always being in mm-hmm. energy debt, always being in um, time debt, always feeling like you need to catch up and never feeling like you're out of debt. Um, and I think that that sooner or later has to come crashing down. Mm-hmm. Are there any ideas how to get to a healthier point? Um, well, I think that the, the debt, debt is actually a really useful thing to do, right? Like if you're starting a business, starting out in debt isn't necessarily a bad thing because you want to be competitive with other people. Um, but I think if you think about things in this, in these terms, then what, you know, when you're out of debt, because you feel, you don't feel that intense pressure. Um, and I think that there's a, an inclination to just go right back into debt at that point, because there's direction there, there's excitement there. Um, Jeff Bezos has this thing when he used to run Amazon, where he said, write the um, PR release first, right? Like write, write the news story first and then build the product to match the news story. Um, and I think that there's some advantage to doing that because you have direction, you have excitement. Mm-hmm. It's like sell it before you make it. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And I think that's another form of debt right there. Um, but once you re- reach that promise, I think it's worth it to celebrate, to to celebrate being out of debt, you know, paying off that debt, <laughs> getting to a, a plateau where you have customers, you have energy, you have a product that works, and then taking the time to consciously decide if you actually want to go into debt again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if so, how it's going to be worth it and what direction you're going to head in. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's possible maybe to just not not be in debt, but also be innovative. I don't know what that looks like. Because I think so often the innovative culture I see in startups right now is all about taking on that debt, putting the marketing first, mm-hmm. making big promises, um, putting out you know excellent branding and and promising the moon, um, getting influencers on board, right, and having them talk talk the moon about this new product like it's going to change your entire life, um, and it's all it's all debt and a lot of it's empty. And um, I don't know what another way is, except maybe uh, there's the story of Stardew Valley um, or Minecraft. There are these games that have been developed by single developers, solo developers, uh, over the period of 10 years. You know, I don't, I don't know exactly how long, but it was like eight or 10 years for, I think, each of those games. And a lot of patient attention went into them and a lot of working in private, right? I mean, there was, there was some public excitement about it, I think later in the process, but I think a lot of it was self-directed and internally directed and passion directed. And, um, I personally haven't taken that approach with most of my projects, but I'm wondering if maybe there is that approach um, for growing a business where you can really take the long-term view and uh, and not go into debt, right? Like just release something that's complete and beautiful and, um, you know, something that people really need and want, but not, uh, not have um, over-promised in order to get there. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, for a second, I thought about this, how awesome it would be not to have trailers for movies Mm. Mm -hmm. instead of just promising this amazing movie you're gonna see in the movie theater so 
come and pay before you see. And um, I had this dream many, many years ago to have a movie theater where you don't pay before you enter the movie theater, but mm. you pay after you leave mm. the theater and you decide yourself yeah. how much you want to pay for it. Yeah. Um, until I realized that basically YouTube right now is this thing that you can watch for free and then you can decide if you want to support a creator right on Patreon and or any other platforms and how much you're willing to contribute to this you know video you watched. <laughs> so I think um, in a way, um, those are all possibilities which can exist in, in this world, um, in this uh, vast and endless world which, so certainly need some boundaries, like healthy boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I learned a lot from today's conversation. Thank you so much, David, for coming. Thank you. It was great talking with you. Bye. Bye. That's all for today. If you want to support and connect with David, go to his website, davidmiranda.info. DavidMiranda.info. Also follow him on Twitter and check out his project, polaidpop.com. It's adorable. If you enjoy listening to the Slowing Down podcast and want to receive updates from me, your host, consider subscribing to my newsletter on my website janaslow.com, J-A-N-N-A-S-L-O-W.com. This podcast was recorded and mixed at AudioZ Studios in downtown Montreal, Canada. Visit AudioZ.com for more information. The music is composed by Remy Celia, aka Clatte. Find his tunes on soundcloud.com slash Klaatu, Apple Music or Spotify. Thanks everyone and until the next time.